If you've ever been to Sacramento, you know that they don't normally speak like this, and of course that's because I'm not really a Northern Californian. Uh, by birth I'm not, I am now, but uh, I am from Scotland, and so you do have the privilege this morning of hearing how you will speak when you get to glory. <laughs> For this is the way it will be, by the grace of God. And you all know that because Alistair Begg, Sinclair Ferguson, and myself all share this common accent. And so we thank God for the grace of God to Scotland in years gone by. And although in these generations, Scotland has become a very much a spiritual wasteland, I am hopeful that there are some new signs of God doing work in Scotland, church planting, gospel ministry, and even Sinclair Ferguson has gone home to Scotland to help. And uh, I'm not saying that's something I'm going to do because Northern California is now my home. I've been there for 19 years, Lord willing. I was praying this morning. He'd give me another 20 to 25. That would take me to 80. I've always prayed for the strength of Caleb and the years of Caleb uh, in the ministry of the gospel, but of course that is in God's hands. I do bring you the greetings this morning of my congregation, uh, Emmanuel Baptist Church with an I and not an E. Our church building is eight blocks from Gavin Newsom's office. Arnold Schwarzenegger was there when I went. He's gone. Jerry Brown has gone. Newsom will go, and the gospel will continue to be preached in the state capital of California. And that is our commitment. And uh, God called me from Northern Ireland many years ago to go there, and uh, I have no desire or interest in leaving. I'm part of the Don't Leave California movement for the sake of the gospel part. That's the issue. Uh, if we're going to change our nation, we'll do it by the power of the gospel because only the power of the gospel can change hearts and can change the nation. And so this morning, if you have a copy of the Word of God, I do invite you to turn to Matthew 16. I do give these introductions at times because some of you need time to tune into the frequency of my accent so that you get a bit more than 20% of what I'm actually going to say. So may the Lord be pleased to uh, help you this morning with the Scottish accent. I do think it's Americanized. When I go home and preach in my, church in, in my home church in Scotland, my friends tell me I'm American, and that is horrendous. Uh, but we, we have some fun with that. It's all to do with the way we pronounce our vowels, um, and that is just the reality of the English language. We're going to read from Matthew 16 this morning, a very familiar portion of the Word of God as we close out what has been a wonderful conference. I'm so thankful for Pastor Rolo, Pastor Corey, Pastor Vladimir, Pastor Ed, these dear brothers that the Lord has put in uh, His service here. When I think of Las Vegas, I don't actually think of the strip and all the nonsense that goes on down there. I think of this church because I had the joy of being here a few years ago. And uh, I tell people that when I think of Las Vegas, I think of my brothers in this congregation and the light of the gospel that shines in this uh, great valley and this needy city. And so when we pray for you, uh, we are thankful uh, that you're on the front line in Sin City for the sake of Christ. And we believe that the Lord will bless that as He is blessing it. And we trust that this conference will be used of God to further His gospel. And so as we close it out, let's read together a very familiar, very wonderful, very encouraging portion of Scripture as we seek to answer this question, can the church's mission fail? The answer is no, but I know that you want me to say a little bit more than that. And so we're going to consider Matthew 16 verses 13 to 20 as our launching pad. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades 
shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Let's pray and ask God's help as we turn this morning to his holy word. Almighty God, our Father who is in heaven, we have lifted up our voices in unison to praise your great and holy name. We have sought to exalt you, for you are the great creator of the universe, and you are the sustainer of all things. And you are the God in Jesus Christ who has reconciled us to yourself. We come to you this morning as a body of your people, thankful that we are the recipients of your grace because we are the objects of your eternal love in him. We pray that as we turn now to your holy word that you would come by the power of your Holy Spirit. You would cause us to understand the things that you have written in it for our encouragement, for our edification, that, O oh God, we might know what we are to believe about you and that we might know what you require of us as your people. And that, Father, even as we close out this conference this morning, that it would be indeed to your glory and to the good of your people and to the extension of your kingdom in this city. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. When you read about the church from the days of the apostles down through the early church fathers in through the Middle Ages to the Protestant Reformation and up to the present day, you might be tempted at times to be discouraged and to be disappointed. But I would encourage you not to be one of those people who tends to always see the cup half empty, but rather to see the cup half full. Indeed, I would encourage you that as a Christian, you have every reason to be optimistic and not pessimistic about the future, because we know where the future is headed, and we know the end of the game. You might wonder, where is the power of the gospel? Where is the work of the Spirit? It seems like light will rise, and then it will be snuffed out. Churches will emerge, and then they will disappear. Os Guinness, a very well-known Christian sociologist, well worth reading, studies historical trends. And he has rightly said, I think, that with regards to the gospel and the church, when you look at the history of the church, we have witnessed North Africa being won for the gospel and then being lost. We have witnessed Europe being won for the gospel, then being lost, then being won again, and now having been lost again. And we witness here in North America it being won and it being lost almost, but maybe it can be won again if the church gets its act together. Certainly the battle is on for North America, but the gospel is spreading to China and to India and to Asia. Indeed, as I mentioned yesterday, some have suggested that by 2030, there will be more Christians in China than card-carrying communists. And that's going to be very interesting. Some of us are old enough to remember the Iron Curtain coined, by the way, by Winston Churchill, a great British prime minister. Some of you will remember praying for the gospel in Eastern Europe. Some of you will know the story of Brother Andrew and the smuggling of the Bibles. I remember 1989, the year I started seminary, 
the iron curtain came down and the gospel went forth. And we sent Bibles into Romania, into Albania. Albania said God was dead. And God said, no, I'm not. You're dead. And the gospel will go forward. I've had a friend who's been a missionary there now for 15 years and done church planting and given his life to the work of the gospel there. In fact, it must be more than 15, maybe 20 now. uh, And we keep in touch. And the Lord has blessed his ministry there. You remember that the Iron Curtain seemed impregnable, but God brought it down. So the bamboo curtain's not a problem for Almighty God. And we must pray for the church in China. Pray for the church in India. You see, they can kill us, but they can't stop us. Because it's not about us. It's about God and the power of the gospel. The history of the church, we know it's not without spot or without blemish. It's not that it's not ebbed and it's not flowed because it has. There are divisions in the history of the church that are perplexing. There are difficulties in the church that are discouraging. There are victories and there are defeats. But the Lord omnipotent reigns. And we must never forget that. We must never lose sight of that. When you consider England in 1677, the year that our 1689 confession was actually written, it wasn't published till 1689 because of persecution, you realize that it was written in the crucible of darkness, in the crucible of persecution, in the crucible of trouble, nonconformists, that is, those who would not conform to the state regarding the church, they were persecuted, they were oppressed, they were jailed, they were even killed. Charles II was on the throne. The Republic of the 1650s was a distant memory. Faithful pastors had been ejected from their churches. And one of my great heroes of the faith, probably the greatest English-speaking theologian in the 1600s, John Owen, only had six years to live in 1677. And you know how many people were in his church? About 30. And you know where his church met? In the house of one of Cromwell's generals, because it was safer to meet there than anywhere else. And when John Owen died, he was persuaded that the great efforts of the church had been lost, and the church had been defeated in England. If he'd only lived another seven years, he'd have witnessed William III arriving in England to bring about the ascendancy of the Protestant monarchy in England and to bring in what we call the Great Revolution that transformed the English-speaking world and brought about religious liberty at a level that we still enjoy to this very day, even in this country. But you would be not for, you would be forgiven for thinking, what a tough time it was for the church. What a difficult time. You could be forgiven that John Owen could be forgiven for thinking he was going out of the world while the church was defeated. But here's what Nehemiah Cox's friend wrote in chapter 26, paragraph 3 of our confession. The purest churches under heaven are subject to mixture and error, and some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, Christ always has had and ever shall have a kingdom in this world, to the end thereof of such as believe in him and make profession of his name. Can the church's mission fail? The answer is no. Because Jesus has promised 
I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. And as we open that up this morning, I want to consider three simple things from this statement in our confession that I think will help us to get encouragement from this topic, this subject. Even in a generation like we live in, that is under pressure, that is facing challenges, it's just come out of a pandemic or whatever it was, and the reality is that we as God's people, we must keep perspective if we're going to maintain faithfulness in the working of the Lord, in the service of the King. So notice, first of all, a very important point as we think about this issue, can the church's mission fail? Notice, first of all, that the church in this age will always be imperfect. Now, I understand for some of you idealists, I just burst your bubble. But you need your bubble burst, right? When I was a young pastor, which is a long time ago now, 25, uh, I became a pastor. I'm 55 now, so you do the math, it's simple. Uh, But I remember being a pastor at 25, and I would say that I was an idealistic idealist, which means I was just naive and immature, right? (laughs) I had an idealistic view of you get out of seminary, you preach, and everybody believes what you say. (laughs) Everybody gets what you say. And everybody's persuaded of it, and the church just can't wait for Sunday to Sunday to be taught the Word of God, and it's going to grow, and it's going to be great. And a few weeks into that, in your pastoral ministry, and soon your bubble begins to burst, and you realize, no, idealistic idealism is really just a naivety. It's a naivety. Not necessarily a malicious naivety. I think it can be very innocent. But to realize, actually, eventually, after years, God will make you into what I call a realistic idealist. And maybe sometimes I think I'm just a realistic realist now. But the reality is that we must understand when we think about the church, the church in this age, between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming, it will always be subject to mixture and error. It will not ever be, it will never be perfect this side of glory. It will always be imperfect. And why do you know that? Because you're part of it. (laughs) So right away, you know, at least you know that you're part of it means your imperfection, being part of it, makes it imperfect. Right? That's fair. Okay? And if you don't know that, see me later. We need to talk. But what I want you to see is that the whole of the New Testament bears testimony to this. Why does Paul write his letters? Why are the epistles here for us? They're to guide us and direct us in doing what? Essentially this, putting off sin and putting on righteousness, becoming conformed to the likeness of Jesus. What's the implication? We're not yet conformed to the likeness of Jesus. We're not yet glorified. And we all know that, don't we? Because we're sitting here and we're not in heaven, right? But it's so important to understand this, and Pastor Ed touched on this uh, in his excellent address that he gave before, this, uh, before our worship, and I really commend that to you. I thought our brother did a wonderful job from those sections of the confession on how to deal with issues in the church. But he, he reminded us of 1 Corinthians 5, and so let's just go there for a moment. Let's think about this. Here's the Apostle Paul. He's writing to the Corinthian church. Now, think about the Corinthian church for a minute, right? He calls them saints. And then he tells them you're divided and following your celebrity pastors. That's not a good thing. He then tells them uh, that they're guilty of sexual immorality. He then tells them they shouldn't be taking each other to court. He then tells them that they've not understood Christian liberty. He then tells them uh, that they're basically guilty of all sorts of crazy charismatic practices that they need to stop. And then he tells them that they haven't understood the doctrine of the resurrection. But apart from that, they're a church. Right? I mean, that's what, First Corinthians, that's what it is, right? It's a letter uh, telling them about all the things that they've got wrong, but they're still a church. Did I just burst your idealism? Good, because you need to have it burst, right? And here's one of, the, one of the horrible parts of the life in Corinth. It is actually reported amongst you that there is sexual immorality amongst you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles. Here's a church tolerating sexual immorality in its ranks, 
but it's still a church. Wow. Wow. Now, it ought not to be tolerating sexual immorality in its ranks. That's why Paul's writing to it. They need to repent. They need to put it right. They need to reform. They need to fix this, right? But the point I'm making to you is this. The church in this age will always be imperfect. There's always going to be battles for the purity of the church. There's always going to be challenges to address sin in the church. And again, I'm sure you're familiar with Revelation, right? Turn to the book of Revelation, one of my favorite books in all the Bible. When I get discouraged, I read the book of Revelation to remind me that where are we going? Jesus wins. Praise the Lord, right? But in Revelation 2 and 3, we have our Lord giving us a commentary regarding the seven churches of Asia Minor. And they're not all commended for all the good things that they're doing, right? They're actually admonished for their imperfection, for their sin, right? Revelation 2, the loveless church of Ephesus, right? Now, think about that for a minute. Ephesus, the church that got the letter to the Ephesians. Calvin calls the letter to the Ephesians the queen of the epistles, right? Where our, our do the doctrine of predestination and election and grace and love are all set out, right? And then the instruction that's given to the church regarding God having brought the Jew and the Gentile together and then teaching them the importance of holiness and sanctification and, and having the gift of pastors and then giving them guidance about their marriages and remind them that you're in a spiritual battle against the forces of darkness. That church received that letter. And here they are years later, and they've lost their love for Christ. They've lost their love for Christ. Paul writes to Timothy, First and Second Timothy. And where is Timothy? He's in, he's in Ephesus. And what's he telling him? You've got to put the church in order there, Timothy. You've got to protect it against those false teachers that are encroaching on the church, Timothy. And now, John is on the island of Patmos for the sake of the gospel, and Christ comes to him and reveals to him, the Ephesian church, John, it's lost its first love. You need to write to them and call them to repentance. And so, my dear brothers and sisters, as we think about this issue of the church's mission failing, we must first of all realize, look, don't be an idealist about the church, right? It will always be mixed with error. There will be moral challenges. There will be theological challenges. There will be, as Pastor Ed dealt with this morning, relationship challenges, right? Our Lord Jesus knew this. That's why He gives us Matthew 18, because what is it our Lord Jesus doing in Matthew 18? He's assuming that we'll be gathered in local assemblies and that we'll offend one another. <laughs> and so He says, when you do, I want to tell you how to do properly the fixing of the relationship how to address the relationship. There's an assumption in the mind of Christ that His church, though it is set apart, though we are saints definitively, we are still sinners experientially, right? And we've got to deal with that reality. We've got to live with that reality. The church is made up, as we were reminded already, of sinners saved by grace, but sinners nevertheless still prone to offend, still prone to fall, still prone to err, still prone to transgress. You have pastors who are imperfect. You have deacons who are imperfect. You have members who are imperfect. We have to realize that, okay? We are a work in progress. So easy for us, I think, in our perfectionist pursuits and our self-righteousness to fail to realize what the church actually is. It is a saved body of sinners still in progress heading towards glory, but not yet glorified. That's why you read things like love one another, be patient with one another, give grace to one another, show mercy to one another. Why? Because we're still sinners needing all of these realities, right? And with regards to doctrine, the church is very much still wrestling with doctrine, right? There's the Corinthians, right? They got the doctrine of the resurrection badly wrong. The Thessalonians, they got the doctrine of the return of Christ really badly wrong, and they had to get corrected, right? 
And here we are, 2,000 years later, and we've got 2,000 years of studying the Scriptures and 2,000 years of apostolic doctrine passed down and gone through many different machinations. That's why the confessions are so important, because they give us the core truths of the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. And yet we recognize, don't we, that even today, one of the great divisions in the church is over what we do with water and who should get it and who shouldn't, right? And what do you do with that? Well, for me, I just roll it to the feet of Jesus, pin my colors to the mast, love my brothers who disagree with me, and get on with my life. That's it. I'm not going to solve the great debate. Only the Lord Jesus will solve it when He comes in His glory, right? And we have to recognize that. We have to be aware of that. And we have to act accordingly. But we need to realize how important it is for us that the church will never be perfect in this generation. We'll never be perfect this side of glory. And we've got to make sure we don't allow that to disillusion us or to discourage us or to stop us from striving to make it more faithful to the Scriptures. Think of your own sanctification for a moment. You know you're not like Jesus, right? Perfectly. But you're now more like Jesus than you were when you first got saved. Praise the Lord, right? You're not what you once were. Now, you're not what you should be, but you are what you are by the grace of God. And you bless God for that, right? I think that's one of the great things that over the years I've learned as a pastor. We've got to be careful when we, we pray like this, Lord, I have a heart that's dark and deceitful above all things and desperately wicked and woe is me. That's the, that's the prayer of a man, I think, that's not been regenerated yet, right? I once had a heart that was deceitful and desperately wicked. I did. Now I have a heart that's alive to God, still corrupt, and not what it should be yet, but not what it once was. See, that's why Paul can write to the Romans, I am persuaded that you are what? Full of goodness. He writes that, right? Imagine, Pastor Ole gets up on a Sunday morning, I hope, and he says, you're full of goodness. And you go, oh no, I'm a worm. Oh no, I'm really a bad person. Now, I, I understand your sentiment. I understand what you But listen, you're a saint, and you're fighting your sin. That's your identity in Christ. That's the glory of grace. And if you really understand that, you won't be boasting about being a saint, and you won't be braggadocious about being a Christian. You'll be humble, and you'll be faithful, and you'll be true. Why? Because you know from whence you've come, and you know from whence to where you're meant to be going, and you know there's still a significant gap, right? But your new creation, dear brother, your new creation, dear sister, you're not what you once were. You have been taken out of the kingdom of darkness, and you have been put in the kingdom of light. And it is a definitive act of God that makes you a new creation. And now it's a progressive transformation into the likeness of Jesus. Well, it's the very same in our churches. We're all at different points, right? But our church is a gathering of those individuals. And so there's going to be mixture. There's going to be error. And so we must not be self-righteously perf perfectionistic we must not be idealistic. We have to be biblically realists and take the tensions of the New Testament into our view of the church. Are you tempted to think the mission of the church is going to fail because it's just so bad? I want you to repent of that this morning, right? I want you to repent of that, and I want you to come to the Scriptures, and I want you to say, wow, look at the Corinthian church. That church is still a church, notwithstanding all the mess. God is still at work. Paul is calling them to repentance and to transformation, and what this conference has been about, reformation, right? But it's not over yet. There's still more to come, and the Lord is at work, and the mission of the church cannot fail, even though the church is imperfect in this generation. Notice, secondly, that actually churches can move from being imperfect to non-existent, right? And this is where we have to think about the church can depart from faithfulness and disappear. But we're not talking about the universal church. We're talking about local churches. 
You see, God will always have His witness on the earth. We'll see this at the end of our sermon, no matter what. But you know, and I heard it this morning, this church didn't exist 33 years ago, right? So I don't know what was on this piece of ground, right? I don't know idea, right? But maybe just the desert, right? But the reality is, God in His grace brought this church, this local church into existence, right? But you know, it's possible that this local church could cease to exist. It's possible that this local church could go. And that's why our confession goes on to say some churches have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. Now, if you were to get in an airplane and go with me to Turkey, right? I've never been in Turkey. I've been in northern Cyprus, which is part of Turkey. But if you were to go to Asia Minor, to modern-day Izmir, city of about five million people, and you were to take a tour up the coast, which apparently is very beautiful, you would not be able to find the church at Patmos or the church at Smyrna or the church at, Smyrna, or the church at Thyatira or wherever. These churches are gone. The candlestick was eventually removed. They disappeared. Now, if you were to get in an airplane and come to my homeland, right, to Scotland, I could take you around the city of Edinburgh or the city of Glasgow. And I could show you these beautiful edifices that used to belong to the Church of Scotland, where great ministers of the gospel in the 1800s preached, where congregations, you couldn't get a seat in these churches in that generation. You know what they are now? Retail outlets, restaurants, even Muslim mosques. Those churches have gone. They've gone. Now, what is the warning here for us? To understand that the mission of the church doesn't mean that churches local cannot rise up and disappear, because they can. And they, they disappear when they leave off the gospel, when they depart from the Word of God. There was a given point in some of these churches in my homeland where the pastors, the ministers, the elders, they decided the Bible's no longer the Word of God. They decided God is no longer the creator of the universe. They embraced all manner of modernity and all manner of liberal understanding, and eventually people began to drift away, and people began to die off. And then what happened? The church disappeared because it ceased to be faithful to the gospel. It ceased to be faithful to the head, Christ. It ceased to be faithful to His Word. It ceased to be faithful to putting into practice what Christ actually taught and commanded. Now, it may have taken half a century. It may have even taken a hundred years. One generation just moves a little bit. Then the next generation just moves a little bit more. Then the next generation just moves. That's why it's so important for us to realize we need to think about what are our grandchildren going to believe if we don't stand firm for the truth of the Word of God. God blessed me in the last couple of years with a little grandson, Isaac Robert is his middle name. And he's two and a half. And I want to make sure that he knows the things of God better than I do. That's my vision for his life. That's my hope. Now, I realize that he may know the things of God better than I do in a generation that might be even very hard to live for Jesus. But listen, what chance does he have if he doesn't know the things of God well in a worse generation even than our generation? You see, brothers and sisters, we have to remember that being part of the church means we're part of something much bigger than ourselves. You see, God, when He saved you, you know what He did? He brought you into His purpose. You didn't bring Him into yours. And if that's the way you're understanding it right now, you need to repent of that, right? God is not some big genie in the sky that you just pull up and down when it suits you to get stuff, right? God saved you by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world 2,000 years ago to fulfill all righteousness, the righteousness you've broken, He fulfilled on your behalf. The sins that you're guilty of were imputed to Him on the cross. He made atonement for sin to satisfy the divine justice of God, turn away the wrath of God, and basically save you from God. And the wonderful thing is this, having saved you and brought you into His family and into His 
purpose, you've come into this glorious reality of the new humanity. The new humanity that out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and we've got a great example of it here this morning, right, is going to be brought into the new heavens and the new earth. But here's the point. You've come into God's purpose. He's not come into your purpose. And it's so important that you refurnish your mind as to that reality. And you need to realize then that local churches are blessed by God when they're faithful to His gospel. But if they cease to be faithful to His gospel, you know what He does? He just shuts them down. He takes away the candlestick. He removes them. And so that's a warning for you here even at this, in this church. 32 years, praise the Lord. May it be 132 years. None of you will live to see that, of course. But you can pass on to the next generation the faith once and for all delivered to the saints as you've got it revealed to you in the Word of God, and I believe laid out for you in the glorious confessions of the history of the church. And would to God that in 50 years' time, Las Vegas had another 50 churches like this that were impacting it. And wouldn't it be amazing if God starts to shut some of the casinos down? Wouldn't it be amazing if God started to restrict some of the, the porn industry that goes on here? Wouldn't it be amazing if God starts to save those people? And they want to shut it down. And they want to build churches. And this valley gets famous for something more glorious than it's infamously famous for. Right? God can do that. That is not hard for God. If He can bring the iron curtain down, and Lord willing, bring the bamboo curtain down, He can turn sin city into saint city. Right? That's no problem for God. And you've got to believe that, brothers and sisters, and hold the line here for the glory of Christ, which brings us to the last point. Christ will never be without a witness and a church in the world until Jesus comes in His glory. Christ will never be without a witness and a church. Jesus promises in Matthew 16, 18, He will build His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. You can take that to the bank. You can take that to the bank. In every generation since the apostles, you can find groups of believers on the earth believing the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean all of their theology was thought through and they grasped everything that needed to be grasped, just like us, right? But they had come into union with Christ. They believed that God had manifest Himself in the flesh through His Son. They believed in Him for the forgiveness of their sins and peace with God. And they sought to order their lives that way. If you haven't read the stories of the Waldensians and the Albigensians, you don't even know who they are, go and search do some research. Groups of Christians who lived in the Alps during the times of great persecution from the Roman church, believing the gospel in exclusive little valleys, serving the Lord, faithful to Christ. God has had His witness in every generation. God has had His people in every generation, and I'm persuaded He will continue to have His people in every generation. This is Reformation weekend. And for those of us in the English-speaking world, we should never, ever have one without thinking of one particular man, William Tyndale. William Tyndale gave us our English Bible. And he gave us our English Bible at the expense of his own blood. Of his own blood. God's outlaw, as he was called. 500 years ago, Tyndale translated the Bible into English. Think about this. Before Tyndale, there was no English Bible on the earth. You had to know Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. Now, as I've said before, I think I said this on Friday, it's good to know Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, right? But it's pretty tough. And it's better if we just have an English Bible, right? Just read our English Bible. It's a blessing, right? And now you think of all the English Bibles that we have, right? And how many of them gathered dust? And how many of them do we not really study? How many versions have you got? I don't even know how many versions. I should probably do that sometime. I've got a whole row of Bibles in my study, and they're all different versions. The New International Version, and the English Standard Version, and you, you name it. But here's the point. Can you imagine William Tyndale in his cell 
in Antwerp in Belgium. Before he's executed, he's been concerned to get the Bible into English. He's going to die for having tried to do that. Can you imagine that he would ever have been able to conceive of the impact of his labors in the world? Here we are in the high desert of North America, 500 years later, reading the Bible that pretty much has it's 90% of what Tyndale actually did. 90%. Can you imagine what Tyndale must have thought when he was dying? He must have thought, the mission of the church, is it going to succeed? Is it going to fail? What have I spent my life on? I'm dying here. No, I think Tyndale knew his Bible because he translated it. And his hope was, as some of the other Protestant reformers, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. And here we are, 500 years later. We've got more seminaries than we know what to do with. We've got more conferences than we can go to. We've got more books than we will ever be able to read. And this is only in English. We are the billionaires of the Christian church, not just in our generation, in every generation that there has ever been in the history of the church. 2,000 years, English-speaking people are the most singularly blessed by God because of everything that we have available to us to know God and the gospel and to preach it. And brothers and sisters, we need to realize that. Tyndale 500 years ago was just the seed that fell into the ground. And look what God has done. Look what God has done. The mission of the church is not failing. The mission of the church is continuing to go forward. The mission of the church has exploded with even the internet. Now, I know the internet's a disaster as well as a blessing, like, like most things. My son is convinced that the world's problems are caused by the internet, right? And I think there's a lot element of truth to that. But think about it. How much access we have now to biblical teaching at the click of a button. I was mentioning the other night that I'm one of those pastors that can just remember pastoring before the internet. I just became a pastor when CompuServe appeared and the dial-up thing, and I had no idea what it was, and I was thinking, what is this thing? And little did I know 30 years later it was going to be such a massive issue. But the point being, you have access. You can go home today, and you can get 10 better preachers than me, and you can listen to them before you even go to your work tomorrow, right? And they can be on the other side of the world. You can see them on video. You can listen to them on recordings. There is an explosion just like there was with the printing press. So the internet has exploded Christianity. This is why the Chinese can't stop it, you see. This is why they, have, they try to block it. They try to stop people, but they can't. This is why uh, politically the world has gone mad now, because you see, we can all investigate a million things. And we can all come up with a million conspiracy theories, of course, which is a dangerous thing. But nevertheless, control has been lost because we can research for ourselves. Now, be careful how you do research. You don't want to become a complete crazy person. But the reality is, it's hard to hide stuff now, right? Well, the Lord is using it for the gospel as well. He's using it for the kingdom as well, right? I'm not going to be one of those guys who stop the internet. I'd be like holding back the Pacific Ocean. It's impossible. So, what do we do? I sat and did three podcasts with these dear brothers yesterday, right? We'd, I didn't even know what a podcast was 10 years ago. I don't even think it had been invented, right? But here we are. You do podcasts now, and you do video, and you do all manner of stuff. But what's it doing? God is using it to cover the earth with the knowledge of His glory. And we need to realize this. We need to be aware of this. We need to be clear on this. The mission of the church cannot fail. Why can't it fail? Is it because of all of these things? No, ultimately it's not. The reason why it cannot fail is because God cannot fail. The reason why the gospel and the mission of the church cannot fail is because it's God's gospel. And Christ cannot fail because Christ is God. 
And we need to realize then this morning as we close out this conference that the reality of the church's mission isn't based on whether Rolo's a good preacher or Corey's a good teacher or Vladimir's a good teacher or Ed's a good teacher or whether I'm a good teacher. Praise God it's not. You know what it's based on? The mission of the church succeeding? God. Who He is and what He promises. And that's why our confession is a wonderful document, because it lays out for us that God in His covenant grace will accomplish His purpose in His Son, and without doubt it will come to pass. Right after the fall, what did God promise? He would send the seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head. The serpent slayer has come. His name is Jesus Christ. What does John tell us in his epistle? That Jesus has come to destroy the works of the devil. What is the work of the devil? It is to destroy the human race. It is to rebel against God. But what is Jesus doing? He's rescuing the human race, and He's bringing us into a relationship with God so that we might then be ready to inhabit what God's going to do yet in His purpose, and that is bring in a new heavens and a new earth at the end of the age. And brothers and sisters, we don't know if that will happen in 10 years or a thousand years. I know American evangelicalism is preoccupied with the imminent return of Jesus like it's going to happen tomorrow night, right? But that's just a wrong eschatology, right? The reality is we've got no idea when Jesus is going to return. But as our brother reminded us, we do know how we're supposed to behave. We're supposed to be holy and busy until He comes. And brothers and sisters, that's the glory of the gospel for us this morning. Churches will come into existence. Churches will go out of existence. But the church of Christ universal will never, ever cease on the earth until Jesus comes in His glory. Why? Because it is the product of God's covenant character and God's covenant purpose. And if God has promised it will happen, it will happen. Whether it's in Jerusalem, or whether it's in Judea, or whether it's in Samaria, or whether it's in Scotland, or whether it's in California, or whether it's right here in Las Vegas, Nevada, the reality is God will build His church and it will never, ever fail. And I want to encourage you this morning as we close off this conference together to remember the reason why it will never fail. Because God cannot fail. Because Christ cannot fail. He has lived. He has died. He has risen. He has ascended. He is ruling and reigning, and He is coming again. And you can be sure that if all of that is true, and it is, then the mission of the church cannot fail because the church is Christ's mission on the earth. In days of trouble, days of change, days of controversy, days of division, days of danger, and even days of defeat, it is possible to forget that God has spoken to all of these providences in His Word. He addresses them all. The great spiritual battle between the forces of righteousness and the forces of evil will continue until the Lord comes in His glory. But He is coming, and He will usher in a new heavens and a new earth at the end of the age. And so when you're tempted to think the mission of the church might fail, remind yourself of whose church it is. It's God's church. It's Christ's church. It is the church of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the mission of the church cannot fail because God cannot fail. So look to God. Trust in God. Consider these wonderful words from the hymn writer. God of the covenant, changeless, eternal. Father, Son, Spirit, in blessing agree. Thine be the glory, our weakness confessing. Triune Jehovah, we rest on Thee. May God encourage us this morning to know that His church cannot fail because He cannot fail. 
It's his church. And Christ has promised that he will build it. Let us pray. Father, when we think of the challenges of being Christians in the 21st century, we know that in many ways, Lord, there are very different kinds of challenges than our forefathers and our forebears. And even, Lord, as we think of the challenges of this valley and all that it brings, we recognize that there are different kinds of challenges than our forebears. And yet, Father, at the end of the day, our enemies are all the same. They are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we bless you, Lord, that you've taught us this in your word so that we might be equipped to be faithful to the end. And we rejoice this morning that we are members together of the body of Christ, not because of anything good that we have done, but because of what you have done in Jesus Christ. And we thank you that we can go from this place, Father, knowing that your church is not perfect, knowing even that churches can indeed depart completely from the Word of God and disappear from the earth, but knowing also that the church universal shall never fail, and you will always have witnesses to Christ somewhere in the world until He comes. It is our prayer, Lord, for this church that it will be faithful for another hundred years, another two hundred years, if the Lord should tarry and not return. It is our prayer, Lord, that in this valley you will raise up more congregations in your church through the ministry of the gospel and the power of your Spirit. And it is our prayer, Lord, that you would turn the hearts of many to Christ in this valley who yet sit in darkness and are lost in their sin. And Father, we go beyond even Las Vegas and we go to our nation. Oh, Lord, our nation is in great need. It languishes in so much darkness and so much depravity that we would be easily discouraged. But were not for us turning again to your word and considering again your glory and your majesty, your dominion and your power. We bless you, Father, that your gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And so we pray for our nation. We pray, Father, that you would send a mighty working of your Spirit upon the hearts of your people to revive us again in the midst of the years, that we would be faithful proclaimers of the gospel, and that we would see faithful churches rise up in this land to turn this land again to God, and that, Father, we might continue to be engaged in the work of the gospel across the world even to the great lands of China and India, and even again, Lord, to recover Europe and Africa. Lord, we bless you that you are at work. We pray that we would go home this morning, this afternoon, aware that we are part of something far bigger than ourselves, far more glorious than we even understand. We bless you that we are part of your great work of redemption, members of the body of Christ. And we bless you that the mission of the church cannot fail because Christ cannot fail. And so we ask you, Lord, to write these things upon our hearts for Jesus' sake. Amen.